Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 453 of the podcast and it's Friday 4th of October 2019 as I record this and yes we are in the final quarter of the year, lots to achieve in the next couple of months. So today I'm talking to Jules Horn about writing for audio first. Now in an increasingly audio world, how do we ensure our books sound good out loud? And what are some tips for writing for listeners rather than readers? And this is something I've become acutely aware of. Obviously, I'm narrating my own books now. Uh, Obviously, I do podcasting, so I'm much more aware of sound, which I I wasn't really before. Also, I listen to a lot of audiobooks and I very much notice when things are great in audio and when things are not great. Um, And in this uh, interview, I do talk about a book called Underland by Rob McFarlane, which is a stunning audio book. And you really, it, it, to me, it's a narrative nonfiction about deep time and the under, under the earth stuff. It's fascinating. But it's also brilliantly, brilliantly written for audio. And I just love listening to it. It's one of those audio books I'll listen to over and over again, because it just has so many levels of resonance. So um, yeah, I think you'll really enjoy listening to Jules today. Whether or not you want to narrate your own audio, it doesn't matter. If you want your books to be available in audio, then you need to keep these things in mind when you're writing. It will help the narrator, it will help the reader, the listener uh, get your work better. Jules has many years of experience in radio. She's also written plays, which of course are to be performed out loud. So she has lots of insight. And I think her book is one of the very few available on writing for audio. So uh, specifically for audio books. This is definitely uh, an an developing area, I guess. So that is coming up. Also, inevitably, uh, I get questions all the time about my microphone and my audio setup. So I have included all of that in my article on home studio set up, you can go to thecreativepen.com forward slash home studio or links in the show notes. So in publishing and book marketing news, Amazon KDP have updated the ads dashboard for UK and German stores as well as US. So if you if you do publish on Amazon KDP, you'll know that uh, next to your book on your um, bookshelf, there's a little sort of button and you can go to advertise and uh, you can put ads. You have been able to put ads on Amazon.com for a while, but now you can also, you can choose the store and you can choose UK or Germany. Now, apparently this is being rolled out. It's not available to everyone. I have it. So I'm actually, after I finish recording this, I'm going to go and have a play with it. Now, I'm really pleased about Germany because, as I've said, I've got three books coming out in German, non-fiction books, uh, in the next month or so. And uh, I'll be using Amazon ads because it's very hard to advertise when you don't speak the language. But, of course, Amazon ads make it much easier. So... um, What I think here is A, fantastic. It's great to be able to advertise on the other stores. B, it's about to get much more expensive. (laughs) I mean, many of you who do Amazon ads on the US store will see how much more expensive it has become, uh, which is why pretty much I focus on nonfiction. It's much easier and much cheaper to advertise. Uh, But for um, the UK and Germany, yep, I think we're about to see an influx. So yes, let's get moving. (laughs) In my personal update this week, I had a few days in London. It's always good to go to the big smoke and um, just to think differently. I always find when I'm at home, obviously, because I work from home in this home office, I can get bogged down in details and minutiae. And I almost need to go away in order to reset my life and my thinking and just just get out of the norm, you know, get out of the routine. So I went to the 
IP, the Intellectual Property Licensing Expo in London, uh, along with my friend Orna Ross. And we'll be talking about that on the Alliance of Independent Authors uh, podcast, which is also out this week uh, as this goes out early October. We learned a lot about branding um, and also kind of really looking at how the powerful brands, most powerful brands in the world, have been doing this a long time. Also heard some very interesting things from the publishing industry that um, basically that they, uh, and and this is a direct quote, I'm not saying who it's from or which company, but it it was a very senior person at a very large publishing house said that they prefer their authors compliant or dead. in terms of IP licensing. And uh, I was pretty pretty shocked at that. Orna and I were like, whoa, I don't think they realise there are any authors in the room <laughs> because it was not an author-centric conference. But we were there and we heard this and we were like, okay, that is an interesting perspective. Uh, and there was somebody else who, who was saying that he loved to work with creators. This was more a discussion on whether working with the originator of the of the IP was a good idea or whether you should just get on with turning it into other things. So very interesting uh, conference. I am going to, obviously I'll talk about it with Orna on the Alliance of Independent podcast, which is called Ask Ally, A-L-L-I. And I will also be reflecting more on licensing after Frankfurt Book Fair and the Las Vegas Business Masterclass. So in the beginning, middle of November, I'll do Uh, a roundup of what I'm thinking about all of this stuff at the moment. But certainly it takes it up a big level. And I was talking about this with, uh, probably with Orna actually, and we were saying, you know, there's this, the development of the indie uh, career, I guess, is that at the beginning you're just like, right, ebook, get the ebook done, get a basic print on demand done. And then as things go on, you're thinking about, um, you know, doing more formats, like obviously hardbacks or large print, you, you might be doing audiobooks, you might be then thinking about publishing wide, thinking about global markets, thinking about translations, and then we're moving into IP licensing, um, you know, all of that type of thing. There is a development of the author journey. Uh, so yeah, don't worry if you're at the beginning, this will all come. I mean, I hopefully I keep challenging you at every level on this podcast because I'm sharing my journey. Uh, So yeah, so I will talk more about that in November. Also in London, I went to the William Blake exhibition at the Tate Britain. Now that I always love to go to art galleries. It really helps me think about bigger stuff. Again, this is all thinking about longevity and what I actually want to do with the next, let's say, because I'm coming up to 45 in 2020. It feels like a big a big birthday. I'm doing lots of things, changing lots of things health-wise. And I'm really thinking about, well, if I'm, let's face it, halfway there, you know, uh, touch wood, whatever, uh, you know, I'd like to live till 90. Uh, what what do I want to achieve? You know, how do I want to look at this? And William Blake is fascinating. I'm still very drawn to his work. Um, he has very biblical, supernatural imagery. And of course, he died nearly 200 years ago. Um, but interestingly, he also fought with the establishment all his life and had this buffer up of um, art versus commerce. He died poor and many considered him to be mad. Um, But now he's considered by many to be a poet, a genius, uh, you know, inspirational to so many creative fields. Uh, His work has truly lived on and become far more than ever was in his lifetime. I'd rather things happen in my lifetime. (laughs) But it does show you that by creating something that is bigger than yourself, it can affect uh, many things. So from... Uh, Howl by the beat poet Allen Ginsberg to Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. Obviously, Philip Pullman has a new Lyra book out uh, this week, actually. Um, Pre-Raphaelite painters like G.F. Watts and uh, Rossetti. Thomas Harris with Red Dragon, one of my favourite uh, William Blake pictures with the Red Dragon. Uh, Alan Moore with The Watchman. Of course, the lyrics to Jerusalem, one of our favourite English hymns. And I actually used uh, William Blake's engraving of Dante's Circle of the Lustful in my series of short stories, A Thousand Fiendish Angels, which is based on Dante's Inferno, which, of course, uh, William Blake illustrated. And so I've been thinking a lot about resonance and about brand in terms of what lasts in terms of myth and imagery and the stories that last, uh, 
yeah, so anyway, I'm, I'm a bit all over the place, but I'm. these are big topics and help me to get out of my head on the days when I'm just looking at things like ads. <laughs> so I hope that helps you too, because I, I feel like there has to be this tension in our creative life between big picture, big challenge, artistic work. And then obviously there's the making money, there's the minutiae of ads and email newsletters and all of that type of thing. So yeah, I hope that helps you think about the bigger picture. If you don't know William Blake, obviously you can Google, um, but I also shared some pictures on Instagram at author, and I always put my pictures there. And interestingly, they said at the beginning of the exhibition, which is great because you just can't stop people taking pictures now, but they said, please do take pictures and don't use a flash. So that was good. So yeah, very good. And if you are in London, check out William Blake at the Tate Britain. Also on the bigger picture, I talked uh, on the Books and Travel podcast this week, my other podcast, uh, and I am Joe Francis Penn on that podcast. I'm Joanna Penn with you now, but I'm Joe Francis Penn <laughs> on my other show. I talked to Ashley Cowles about walking the Camino de Santiago, and I also committed to walking it before I am 50. So that's uh, in five within five years' time, pretty much as part of my health goals, but also my life goals, because I have wanted to walk the Camino for uh, pretty much as long as I can remember. It's something that has always drawn me. If you don't know about the Camino, it's, it is a pilgrimage. It's a Catholic pilgrimage. It's uh, like a thousand years old, basically. But um, now many people walk it more as a life pilgrimage. And I'm not Catholic. I'm, I'm not religious. But of course, I have deep a deep affinity to uh, religious history and um, Santiago de Compostela. If you read my arcane novels, it's in Stone of Fire and uh, I definitely would write a book on the way, that's for sure. So if you want to check out that podcast, go to Books and Travel, search Books and Travel on your podcast app or go to booksandtravel.page. Right, also what happened this week... uh, Thanks to everyone who picked up a copy of Public Speaking for Authors, Creatives and Other Introverts, which is now available in all the formats. Yes, now when I go live, I go with ebook, paperback, large print, hardback and audiobook because I'm that hardcore. <laughs> so if you are an author or creative preparing for success and you want to learn to speak effectively in front of an audience, even if that audience is just a microphone, as I am now, <laughs> then check it out. Uh, also, this week, yes, big uh, big news this week. I have another new nonfiction book. It's so funny because I feel like I'm having a flurry of end of year books, which is not what normally happens to me. So productivity for authors, find time to write, organise your author life and decide what really matters. This is my uh, pretty short productivity book. I think I think a productivity book should be short because <laughs> it shouldn't be complicated. But I feel like I've turned a corner on this. And a lot about it is that last uh, sub in the subtitle, Decide What Really Matters. I think I'm getting to grips with that after all of these years. Uh, so this book will be out wide and in all the formats in mid-December, but uh, mid-December 2019. But until then, you can get it. Uh, in ebook format as part of the NaNoWriMo Story Bundle. You can find it at storybundle.com forward slash nano, N-A-N-O, links in the show notes. This bundle is pretty blooming good, actually. Uh, so good that I'm reading some of the books in it at the moment. It includes books on dictation by Kevin J. Anderson, 5,000 Words Per Hour by Chris Fox, How to Make Money with Christine Catherine Rush. And this is a good one because Chris has an entirely different perspective to the write fast, go KU, make money method, which is so common in the indie world. Mark Lefebvre uh, has books on Killing It on Kobo and the Seven P's of Publishing Success, uh, which are fantastic, plus books on growing your email list, how to finish your novel, researching history for fantasy writers, which is great, writing Wonder from David McFarlane, who is excellent, and lots more, actually. This is a seriously incredible bundle. It is a pay-what-you-want deal with bonuses unlocked at specific levels. It is very, very well worth uh, the money. 
So whether or not you are doing NaNoWriMo this year, you will find these books super useful. Go to storybundle.com forward slash nano, N-A-N-O, to get them before the end of November 2019. Also in useful stuff, because I think that bundle is super useful, (laughs) Mark Dawson is doing a free webinar on how to get your first or your next 10 book reviews on Tuesday, 15th of October at 4pm US Eastern, 9pm UK. Now, I've uh, done this webinar with Mark uh, before. It is a great webinar. I will not be co-presenting this one because I'm doing another one um, this week, but it is fantastic and super useful if you want to get more book reviews. Um, And I highly recommend Mark. I'm an affiliate for his courses. This is a free webinar. Uh, You can get your place or register for the replay at thecreativepen.com forward slash oct19. So OCT19, short for October 2019, obviously, thecreativepen.com forward slash OCT19. And links in the show notes. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. I always love to hear from you. Please do tweet me at The Creative Pen. Leave a comment on the show. Um, and because uh, I, I love to hear from you. I love to see your pictures. Always appreciate your pictures. And uh, I sometimes I print out things and stick them in my journals. And in fact, uh, this first um, email from Anna. Thank you, Anna, listening in Jersey, uh, in the Channel Islands. Anna said, I originally found you on YouTube when looking for publishing children's books. I've now listened to hundreds of podcasts, joined Patreon and recommended you to everyone I meet who writes. You've helped me so much. Oh, thank you. And uh, Anna says, you are in danger of inspiring me to write normal books, (laughs) not just books for children. (laughs) Thanks, Anna. I did print that out, stick that in my journal. Uh, I do have bad days. I know I don't talk about that much on this show, but like all of us, you know, sometimes I wonder what the hell I'm doing. And uh, these types of things really uh, help me carry on. So thank you, Anna. Uh, Kirsten Lillis says, catching up on the podcast while making homemade baby food. Hopefully my daughter likes peas as much as I like learning from Joanna. Thinking of starting a podcast after listening to the podcast movement recap awesome and and I'm also working on this other non-fiction book I don't know what's going on but feels like I'm in this non-fiction phase um before NaNoWriMo, which I'll talk about next week. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I have another book on audio and podcasting and stuff so I'll be talking about that in that book to come. Bernie Anderson says my Creative Pen podcast GPS this week from Chiang Mai in Thailand. Me and this cat sitting across from me sent a nice picture of a cat from Thailand. Uh, Thanks, Bernie. And uh, Dixon Telfer says, hey, the Creative Pen, about your recent podcast, I like your giggles and mistakes. They make you human. (laughs) Not sure about this AI narrator stuff. No, you're right. As I said, you will know if it's really me. and then Edwin Downward said, uh, said, it seems to me that the advent of AI-based leaps forward are coming consistently faster than anyone has predicted. This puts any timeline on how to prepare for an AI-powered world in serious question. And yeah, there's a, a kind of a serious point there from Edwin and one I replied to saying, yeah, I'm surprised. I thought when I did my 10-year predictions for AI affecting authors, I didn't think I would be reporting on an update so soon. Um, And yeah, so, but as I've said before, I think surfing this change is super important and using the tools. And I hope to be with you uh, during this time of change. I shall, I shall be your guide. I, you know, I, I, I do oscillate between loving, loving, loving AI and tech. And then sometimes we're watching this thing in the UK, it's called The Capture on BBC. And it's about deep fakes, essentially, within the police network and intelligence community. And it's, it's really, it's kind of scared us a bit. We're sitting there going, whoa, this is scary stuff. Uh, but I'm, I'm such an optimist that I believe and I think Kevin Kelly said it, it's like if 51% of it is good, then we're still good. (laughs) And we're in the 51% people. We absolutely are. 
So today's show is sponsored appropriately by Findaway Voices, who can give you access to the world's largest network of audiobook sellers and everything you need to create professional audiobooks. So I love Findaway because their goal is to help you take back your freedom, and I love freedom, with audiobook sales. So while some services uh, don't allow you to decide your pricing, Findaway does. And you can set it for the retail side and for library borrows too. And that is another thing. Findaway puts your audiobook into library catalogues so readers can listen for free and you still get paid. Fantastic. Of course, if you are exclusive with one of the other services, you cannot be in libraries for your audiobooks. So you can reach a global audience through retailers like Apple. Uh, sorry. Yep. Yeah. Apple, absolutely, and Audible, and also retailers like Storytel, which is expanding into all the territories not dominated by Audible. You can use Findaway to get into these. Uh, also, Google Play audiobooks as well as Kobo Audio. You can also sell direct through through Authors Direct. And Findaway have started to work with BookBub on Chirp audiobook promotion. It is uh, still in the US only space right now but hopefully that will change over time so yes there is a book bub for audiobooks it's called chirp and you can get in it if you are with findaway voices you cannot if you are exclusive with another service because you have to be able to set your price and discount it so uh, you don't have to narrate your own books to use findaway in fact they can help you find a narrator um, and they can match you with the right type of people they'll help you through that process Uh, or if you do narrate yourself you can upload your finished files as I do. Findaway have announced Voices Share, which is uh, where the author pay half the normal cost of an audiobook in exchange for sharing 20% of the royalties with the narrator. So if you want to get into audiobooks, now is a fantastic time and we just hear more and more great news about audiobooks every week. So take back your audiobook freedom and publish your audiobooks everywhere with findawayvoices.com. Right, so this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing of the show. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. Those of you who've been supporting for years now, uh, I love you so much. You do help me do this every week. Thanks to new patrons, Esther Rosno or Rosenau, uh, Linda M. McCarthy, Christina Wright and Nicole White. Like the tweets and emails, your support on Patreon demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. And you can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you will get the extra monthly Q&A audio, which I'll be recording very soon for October. So lots more audio fun and you get the backlist if you subscribe just a couple of dollars and you'll get the entire backlist. So support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get on with the interview. Jules Horn is a Scottish playwright, radio dramatist and fiction writer, as well as writing non-fiction books for authors. Today we're talking about writing for audiobooks, audio first for flow and impact. Welcome, Jules. Hello, Joanna, and thanks very much for having me on the show. Oh, no, I'm so thrilled to have you here. And this is such an interesting topic. But first up, tell us a bit more about your background and why you love audio so much. Well, I'm from a background slightly in radio. I have a slight Scottish accent, so I hope people can um, don't mind that. And I live in rural Scotland, sort of in the border between Scotland and England. And it's the part of um, um, it's part of Scotland which was famous for the border ballads and kind of supernatural tales. So um, I had a wonderful primary teacher who got me started in writing, and he read us Animal Farm and The Hobbit and things at a very young age. So kind of a love of listening and being having the story read to you was, I think, really rooted there. And then I went on to study uh, languages at university. I studied French and German. And again, the voice and the music of language I really loved and ended up working as a translator and then as a journalist translator. So I kind of did a very um, convoluted route into radio journalism But all that time, I was always writing fiction and I took part in Amdram, um, which I was terrible at. And I was also not the world's best news hound, uh, really. I wasn't 
totally into news, I think, um, features and storytelling was all much, much more of interest to me. My finest hour as a as a news hound was interviews uh, interviewing the Swiss version of Santa Claus, um, Sammy Claus. So it was a kind of dramatized story even 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 then. And then what happened was I came back to the borders to be with my partner and really struggled to find work. And the Traverse Theatre, this is an Edinburgh new writing theatre, they came to my area and they were offering playwriting workshops. So it was fantastic, just bit their hand off and it was absolutely life changing. And I got my first play commission and some short stories and plays on BBC Radio. And, and that was a quite a long time ago. I haven't had uh, those those plays on since, but I still love audio. And of course, it's coming back full circle now, which is really exciting. And I was, I was thinking about what I love about it. And I think it's it's the music and the distinctiveness of voices, partly, and the sort of humanity that comes across in voices. And when you do voice editing a lot, when you're cutting up interviewees and that kind of thing, you get a real feeling for breath and rise and fall and character and that whole thing of flow. And I just found that really interesting to see how voices were kind of shaped. And I think another aspect is um, now with audio, we've kind of come back full circle to kind of primal storytelling. And if you imagine the original um, poet, bard, storytellers sitting around the campfire or even being read to when you're really young, I think it's a very early um, sort of primal thing. And you get that in books, but with books, you're doing all the serious cognitive work. You know, you're kind of decoding the page and listening is more hypnotic. It's more like someone else kind of in a hypnotic way um, speaking to you. And, and another thought is um, um, storytelling, you get it in theatres and you get it in these big public arenas still, but it's a public space and radio is very intimate. So I kind of wondered if maybe um, audiobooks are a bit like, it's a bit like introverted version of theatre. So it's kind of storytelling, <laughs> you're, you're connecting to people, um, but it's a one-to-one intimacy, which is nice. And I think the third aspect is uh, the pictures are yours. So the, it's so imaginative because you make them in your own imagination and it really asks you to make those pictures. There's one really brilliant radio play I heard, which is a kind of lasting memory for me. And it's one of these, you know, stop the cars, the car and don't get out kind of things. And it was, um, I think it was BBC Radio and they had a version of Homer's Odyssey. And there's a bit where the men steal the cattle of the god Helios and it's it's and they kind of rise from the dead and um, the skeletal cattle come to life and kind of creak and groan and it's just such a vivid image of this meaty barbecue of cattle and and then the skeletal cattle um, rattling and all that kind of thing it was just brilliantly done and it's you that makes the pictures and what's really funny in radio and um, in like Radio 4 drama which is BBC's they're the main player really in the drama space is they you know they might have a racy play for example and it's essentially it's actors kissing their own arms and that kind of thing so it's <laughs> it's not really that racy in the studio but it sounds racy and they they get listener feedback because people are outraged at the racy nature of the scene <laughs> but the thing is it's them it's them making their own pictures so it's kind of yeah, it's a racy scene, but only because you thought it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that, that's fantastic. Really you've, yeah, you've given us tons there. And I think you're right about things coming full circle with the technology that makes this so accessible and easy. Um, someone actually asked me a question uh, recently, you know, how do I get my audio onto CDs? Um, and I basically said, don't bother, because <laughs> so there's been a report recently, the Association of Audio Publishers or something. So over 90% now of audio is is done with downloads. And I mm-hmm. listen to so much, you know, as soon as I hear about something, I'll download a sample or I'll download a podcast or I will get audio first. And that is a real switch I've found in my own behavior. In fact, now I'm annoyed if I can't find the book in audio, like it's moved that much for me in terms of my my consumption. So I think you're right about there's so many different forms um, of of audio. Have you noticed, like as a reader, obviously you're a writer, but have you noticed your own behaviour as a reader or other people's moving to this audio first idea? I think it's it really is happening and it's happening so fast as well. And, and I think how people talk about reading um, as being an audio thing now has changed really recently. So I have a friend, she was talking about a book and wondering if I'd read it. And, um, and we were talking about this book and she said, 
And I said, oh, could I borrow it? Um, um, and she said, oh, well, I've listened on audio. And I thought, wow, and this is a friend who's a voracious reader. And I wasn't aware of her listening to books and, and then describing that as reading, which I, th- I think is a shift. I think we're in the middle of a shift where that is maybe not traditionally perceived as reading, but it's becoming that. So, yeah, very different. And also that, as you say, that thing about on demand and being much more, much more, you know, I want to hear this, and I'm looking for that. And you know, I, I must must say, in the car, I listen to podcasts, which I've kind of set up in advance, or um, rather than just switching on and uh, switching on the radio and seeing what's on. So I think in a very short space of time, very big changes in behaviour. Mm. I actually think that people who say listening to audiobooks is not reading are people who don't listen to audiobooks, because I mm. just if you have listened to an audiobook, you have to know that it is like reading it I mean it goes into your brain it's just another input method as such right mm-hmm. um yeah so anyway we are, we're all audio fans here um so let's let's come on to um your book writing for audiobooks which as far as I know I think it's the only book out there on writing for audiobooks do you is oh that... well that's great <laughs> yeah <laughs> if it is that's brilliant I think, I think it know. is yeah I think you're ahead of the curve on this one because I've noticed as I have edited my own works for audio narration that there are lots of things that are quite different so we're going to talk about that in detail but let's start with something that um that kind of separates audio from audio listening to reading on a page or even an ebook. You talk about audio being like a train track. It moves relentlessly forward. So what implication does that have for our writing? I think the main thing and the main thing for any any kind of audio writing is it has to be really, really clear or you lose your audience. And so that I, that metaphor is really useful one because it's a kind of inexorable forward momentum. And um, it's a bit like also like cogging with, um, say you've got a bicycle chain and it slips, you know, you can lose the reader in that kind of way. So thinking of it moving forward, um, keeping the audience on board is a useful metaphor. And a really simple example of that kind of thing of imagining it whizzing past and kind of losing it somewhere is um, long numbers, for example, or long URL strings. We just can't retain them. So, you know, short term memory, we'll kind of go, ah, just missed that. And it's gone whoosh and it's passed. So and um, I mean, in live radio, that's extreme. You can't you literally can't go back. There are no second chances. And it's not quite like that with audiobooks because you can, you know, you could stop and start. You could go back. Oh, I missed a bit. But on the whole, you don't. And you really, de- um, to keep the listener on board, you do need to think a bit about using some of those techniques from, uh, for example, live radio. Th- there's an example of in live, you've got, um, you might switch on in the middle of an interview and someone's speaking and you'll think, oh, great, really interesting interview. And then the presenter forgets to do a back announcement. So you've no idea who that was. And that idea of back referral and kind of little touches to keep the flow going forward although you're not in audiobooks you're typically not coming in in the middle of something like that you do need to have these little touches just to keep reminding you know where where we are just to keep it flowing forward so that's that's definitely um a radio technique that that grows out of that moving relentlessly forward uh, metaphor. Mm. Yeah, I think that number thing is so I've really noticed that again, it works fine in a, um, in a, when you write it. And in fact, I had an example in my public speaking book, which I've just been editing for audio and then narrating. And I mm-hmm. had an example of, you know, some money um, examples for an event that you might run yourself. And mm-hmm. I really noticed that saying all these amounts in dollars out loud I was like, oh, this really, this doesn't work enough. So I need to change this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, so that was really, really interesting because they, they just don't go in. So you, you, you miss the point. Or I guess if you do have um, examples like that, you can always have them in your downloads, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. But mm-hmm. let's start yep. with fiction because uh, we're going to do fiction and nonfiction separately. So what are some of the ways that we will need to adapt our fiction writing when writing for audio? Well, I think um, I think the obvious thing, and a lot of people, a lot of writers will do this anyway, is um, to read it out loud. And of course, yeah, people do this already. But do you really perform it? And I think I think that's it's a kind of another stage of really trying to perform it. So when I say read it out loud, actually stand and um, 
really articulate every sentence and make sure it 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 feels right to the mouth it lands well and i'll come up to some of the, some of these concepts a bit later one of the main things is sentences are much shorter in the spoken word so if you're running out of breath chances are the actor will be running out of breath and it's too long so you chop it up and and a particular uh, uh, culprit for these things is which clauses so if you've got loads of which clauses, relative clauses, asides, that kind of thing, they can very often be broken up quite simply just to give yourself more punch in the sentences. I mean, I was really shocked when I first got into a theatre studio as a newbie playwright and the actors were reading out, cold reading my play. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I, I thought it was it was written to be read, but some things they were just going on and needed to be really quite brutally chopped. So you know, I'll sort of learn to write with that in mind. Um, and another thing is um, different kinds of sentence attack. Um, if you think of sentences as kind of music and how easily we can get kind of lulled by patterns. And sometimes I notice with writers that I'm working with, you have, they have maybe have a tick of a certain kind of sentence shape. So for example, they always start with the main clause and then the verb, that would be like the protagonist did, 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 did and then did another thing. And so it has that rise and fall with that force at the beginning and other writers might have a tick which is always doing uh, doing a lot of subordinate clauses first so grabbing her diddle do from the diddle she went off and um, you see that kind of mm. shape of of sort of up and then down and if you get maybe like three of those in a row one after the other in a paragraph it, it becomes a bit too similar um, and um, you need to kind of change them so that you've got a variety of, of pace and sentence length, but also that music. And I think it's important here that music is, is often in the shape and the structure and not just in things like pitch, which you would imagine normally from, from voice and so on. So it's kind of in the shape and the, the rise and fall of sentences. And there was a wonderful um, quote from, I read um, Philip Pullman, um, you know, somewhere online, where he was saying when he, was writing, he kind of was aware of where the sentence was going next in its kind of music, in its kind of shape. He wasn't, he didn't always know fully what was exactly in the sentence, but he kind of knew that if he wrote, just a sort of, this isn't a great example, but like, there might be some kind of shape that he was reaching for mm. in his head. And I just thought that was fascinating. <laughs> I thought that was really amazing because yeah, that feeling that music as you write, it just is, it's kind of what you do with audio writing, I'd say. Yeah, I think you're right there. And it's interesting because even though you might have, um, you know, as a writer, when you're self-editing or when you get an edit for the print or ebook, you'll get repeated word issues. Um, but I found with the audio, it's repeated sounds. So even though it might be, a, it's not the same word, it sounds the same, uh, or mm -hmm. as you say, it has either that, you know, like the, what, well, a shape or just a sound that's exactly the same on the next sentence that makes it sound weird. So mm -hmm. I've ended up using, you know, having a thesaurus and oh, actually uh -huh. actively changing some words to avoid a repeated sound if I didn't want a repeated sound, yep. um, which is so different to how I've done it before, which is, oh, well, it's a different word. So I, I, I wouldn't have even noticed that. Um, but I did want to ask about the asides. You mentioned asides and uh, many fiction authors use italics, for example, to have internal, you know, a character's internal thoughts, or as you say, like an aside, if you're speaking to yourself or something like that. So how, you know, I always feel like that can be too much in a written book regardless, but how much does that affect an audio performance? I think that's an interesting one. It would depend on the genre and what you were achieving with that, because you can have a sort of mic equivalent of italics. If you if you think of the italics as the interior voice, and the what's round about it is the um, is the narration. Let's say um, what what you sometimes hear, for example, in radio dramas, if there's a character with an inner voice, is and I'm going to try and do this, but I'm not idea if it will work. Is you've got a certain distance. Um, for the narration and then you've got this I don't know what this sounds like because I'm not hearing it but coming mm. in close so close miking is often used for the inner voice but I think in most audiobooks you wouldn't be the performer probably wouldn't be working like that so basically you can't easily render italics 
or let's say, you know, those inverted commas, those air, I don't know, air mm, quotes, air quotes, things yeah. like that, things like that um, aren't really easy to render um, and need, need a kind of equivalent or you just need to think it through as a writer and, and make sure it works just as a as a continuous text in some way. So, so there are kind of ways around it that are, as I say, maybe like close miking, but I think that could that could sound really intrusive and um, maybe a bit OTT if you if you did it like that. So I would kind of steer steer uh, steer clear of that. Mm. Yeah, I see, and my other um, my other thing is commas. I think there is a real problem with comma usage in a grammatical sense and comma usage in a, a sort of a presentation sense or a narration sense where commas can be used as a breath when you're mm. narrating but in your actual writing commas are not used as a breath they're used in a grammatical structure and mm. so this to me is very interesting because when I have been editing for my performance I've ended up putting in commas into my own books mm. because they were missing them and then when I put it through Grammarly or a proofreader for example they get those commas get removed or or changed so uh, right, what, okay. what, what's your thoughts on on commas uh, that's uh, that's really tricky. So it's what you what's what's primary, and there's also an interesting question about whisper sync. I think because it's how do you? Mm. I mean, I I would certainly mark up for performance, and I wonder if you're perhaps going on a similar route to me, which is writing the audiobook first, and then um, in the future I think I will always write the audiobook first because it it's very cleanly edited then, and um, then I probably wouldn't mark it up with um, commas. Um, I would I would put the grammar first, and then I would I would pri- I would prioritise the grammar so that it's right in the print, the new book. Um, but I will I usually still read from a paper script, so for that I would definitely put marks in, and what I use is slashes instead of commas. So if if it's um, if sentences need broken up, I'll read it out with slashes for breaths rather than doing. So that's that's my route. I'm sure everyone finds a different way around it. Yeah, but I would prioritise grammar. But it's an interesting question because it's how is um, the the writing of audiobooks going to affect how people write for other... Exactly, exactly. And um, uh, it's funny you talk about paper. I've been using paper up until I just had my eye surgery. Uh, as we record this, um, I just had my eye surgery and my close vision has changed. My my um, far vision is fixed. You know, I'm no longer short-sighted, but I've mm-hmm. ended up using an iPad um, where you can obviously change the size of the text and using a app called Eye Annotate mm-hmm. on, on, the, um, on the iPad, which I found actually really good. So, and you can mark it up in the same way. So I just thought I'd mention that in case people are interested. Um, oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, OK, so let's talk about nonfiction now, uh, which I think is even more significant. <laughs> so what are some of the ways we need to adapt our nonfiction for audio? Yeah, I think um, and the, the, one of the things I just wanted as an aside to say um, in audio, things don't exist if they're not um, regularly referred to. They kind of disappear. So one of the things is keeping keeping something alive by referring back to it every now and then. And um, so, for example, if you've got a scene with three people and two are talking, um, the other one is mulling or packing a suitcase or something and they don't hear you don't hear from them for a while then they suddenly pop up you're you're really confused because they've literally disappeared from the picture it's a bit like a firefly fading um someone's literally not there when they're not there in audio so um you have to keep these things alive and i think that's true for nonfiction too just keeping the concepts and these sort of touch points i call them little touches just to recontextualize or um, remind people where you are and and nonfiction is particularly tricky and Amazon does actually have a list of books they think aren't ideal um, for doing an audio format and there's actually quite a list and um, quite a lot of them are non-fiction so um, things like um, cookbooks, diet books, um, engineering and professional reference books you would imagine aren't, aren't great. Yeah anything um, that is, I guess anything that is image heavy um, yeah. And I mean, uh, lists, whether they're lists of numbers or lists of ingredients. I mean, that's just yeah, yeah. completely pointless by audio. Yeah. So it's worth checking if you're if your book's in that genre, it's worth checking that out because it is advising that certain books don't lend themselves ideally to audio. Um, but 
if you are doing, for example, a how-to, an instructional book or something like that, anything with numbers, charts, bullet points, anything with a complex information hierarchy. So say you've got headers, subheditors, and then bullets below that. Um, I think that's quite hard to convey in, in audio form. So that might be need, either rewritten or um, or just a, a layer of hierarchy taken out. But there are ways around it. So what's really handy is that ACX lets you upload a PDF download for your book. So if you've anything that really falls into that category and can't be adapted, say, you know, long URLs or charts or images or anything like that, you can offer that as a, an uploaded PDF, so which is a nice add-on for the reader. So there's that way around it. And also anything that might go out of, out of date, um, like say resources or, um, I don't know, tech, anything like that. And Another thing you can do is, I mean, you were talking about numbers and you can round them up and round them down, just make them really simple, simplified or use comparison. So this is another radio technique. You might say something wasn't 20 feet high, but it was, I don't know, the height of a London bus or something, something that's, um, you know, visually iconic so that people are likely to know what that sort of size is. So it's a comparison. But you have to be slightly aware of context in your audience, because if it's a comparison, like I think in the UK, they say a lot, it was the size of whales. <laughs> and unless you know what size whales is relative to other things, then it's not that useful. So um, yeah, comparisons, it's like um, um, caveat there. Yeah, so be international in your references, which also is something I've been thinking about. So the PDF download is interesting because what I do is drive people to my website. So I'm not going to upload my PDF to ACX or Findaway Voices. I'm going to say to people, you can download a companion ebook and list of resources at, um, and then I use a you know, a, an easy to say uh, URL um, to so that people can come to my website. And then, of course, hopefully sign up for my email list and become part of the ecosystem. So I think that's another. That's perfect. Yeah, exactly. But also with, with URLs, what I'd say is um, I use a URL shortener um, called Pretty Links as a WordPress plugin so that you can make them easy to say. And this is really important. I've said to people before, like, make sure your website's easy to say and, um, you know, and, and say out loud on a podcast or an audio book. So what, so any other thoughts on URLs and websites? Yeah, I think the URLs, I mean, in the old days, we used to say www. And of mm. course, that's just ridiculous. And um, I mean, just saying that in it, on its own gets your tongue all tied up. So um, just, I think then bbc.co.uk is what became the norm. So I think just leave off the WWs is a good starting point. Um, yeah, and um, keep keep them short. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I've been going in the public speaking book, like we should just go back to WhisperSync. You mentioned it. WhisperSync is where it's an audible specific thing. If your ebook matches your audio book within a quite a small variant. Um, if people have the ebook, they can get the audiobook for cheaper. And also if they can stop reading and start listening and stop listening and start reading, um, and it will it will sync with, with where it was. So um, I've actually removed my www dots at the beginning of my URLs because I thought, well, that might hit a variance Mm -hmm, on WhisperSync. Mm -hmm. So even in the print books now, it's going to just be thecreativepen.com forward slash whatever. Whereas before I would have written www dot, you don't need to do that anymore. Yeah, it's quite a thought, isn't it? That um, if you want it to be compatible with WhisperSync, because I started in a sort of gung-ho way recording my first audio book. And because, uh, because of radio, and it was a, a factual book, I was automatically ending it adding in these kind of flow words that you tend to. So it's like, so and moving on and all that kind of thing, these kind of linking words. And then, then you know, screeched to a halt when I realized that WhisperSync that said, oh, this isn't going to be compatible. So I had to go back and actually redo the print and ebook in that slightly more informal way because mm. it, wasn't going to, it wasn't going to work. So yeah, they are, they are um, different styles, very different styles. 
Mm. But I, w- I, I would say there that um, as indies, we have a, a great advantage in which we can go back and update the ebook. And that's what I tend to do now is just go back and upload a new version uh, in, in yep. order to match it. Another thing that people often kind of get confused about are things like appendices, acknowledgements, anything that goes in the back matter of a book. Um, and, you know, or even some people say, should I narrate the captions that were on my images? Uh, so mm-hmm. I basically say, no, you don't do any of that. Um, you just do, just all of that disappears. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Yes, I would imagine that. And then and you get rid of those things, but then you have a little intro and outro at the end um, when you, you have a little uh, you know two minute thing that you put up on the ACX, which is the intro um, and your credits at the end. So there's an equivalent thing, really. Yeah, exactly. So that's where you would, the call to action is you can get all the extras at this web address. And in that way, people can come and download um, what they like. So that's very cool. Yeah. And as you say, it's great. What's brilliant is um, as indies, we can we can actually do that for ourselves. So, um, for example, if you want to add more into your credits or outro, if you've got a new book out or something, then you've just got one, maybe two minute um, audio clip to redo and upload. So it's actually fairly straightforward. Mm. So some of the things that are also interesting, I mean, we mentioned the asides, for example, but you talk about these tricky expressions, things that are fine to read in your head, but hard out loud. Um, and sometimes it's so weird because I, I stumble across these and you might read it four or five times and you just can't say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. Why, why are some sentences like that? Yeah, it, it's funny and it's very individual, isn't it? But also you don't don't know what they're going the ones that are going to do that to you until they leap up at you and quite often if you're if you were say reading the news or something you'd, you'd that's why you have to practice it because you don't know what those um what those uh, phrases are going to be there was one i think i'd written the necessary level of analysis as and then <laughs> another one which was acx's stringent tests oh i got it out <laughs> there but i mean that's pretty hair raising and a really funny one which is common in in for example radio news is and it's just so simple, but it's this is. And people tend not to say this is, but they'll say it's. Mm. It's the first time. This is the first time. It's the first time. Just because it's got more attack and less sibilant S. And so it's just easier to say. So I think there are some letters um, that maybe in proximity to each other are a bit more of mouthful because there's more um, mouth gymnastics going on. And for me, and it'll be individual, as I say, um, it's S's and T's and to a degree L's for some reason. I don't know. I think yeah, people <laughs> yeah, have I different think the, things. Yeah, the point is there that it, you just don't know. Um, but also if you are doing your own narration, then you, you step away. That's what I end up doing. If, like, if I can't get it in four goes, I step away <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> and like take yeah. a break and then come back. And if I can't do it again, then I will rewrite that sentence because it clearly is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Or another tip, here's another tip, which is just to really break up the syllables. And I found that with uh, um, with long names, for example, which maybe only pop up once, and I didn't know where the stress was, mm-hmm. then I would have a, a technique of writing, um, like, here's one, innovative development. So I would write capital I-N and then break it up into all the four bits. And it would force me to read them as individual bits. So I wouldn't be reading one word, I'd be reading innovative development, um, which isn't a great example. But if you imagine you had a word that was a name, for example, a proper name, um, you would be able to read it as its syllables and mm. that would help you slow down. So that's that's another thing to try. Um, and also um, some things are more resonant than others. And you're talking about rewrites um, to use certain words, maybe more emphatically. And um, it was interesting. I was reading a, um, Stephen Sondheim's book. It's um, um, Look, I Made a Hat or um, Making a Hat. I can't remember. It's about writing lyrics for songs. And you sort of learn that for songwriters, certain vowel sounds are really lovely and resonant and can be easily sung. So um, things like O and O and A are better for projection. And um, he wrote this song, I think it was Bring On The Clowns, which has the line, isn't it rich? And if you think rich is, is not one of these, I, 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 is a really short little sound. Mm. So it's not got that same sonorous sort of quality. So there are some words that... Um, that are less resonant to say and maybe to perform than others. So yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting. As an example here, um, and another important concept I think for 
performance is mm-hmm. like, where does the sentence land? So a sentence has an opening and it's attack and where it where it goes and then it sort of lands at the end somewhere. And if you can look at your openings and endings, um, yeah, where it lands, for example, he lifted the sentence, he lifted the knife and started to whittle busily, humming to himself. The sentence kind of runs out of steam. But if the image that you want someone left with is the character with the knife, he lifted the knife and started to carve. That is a word that has a kind of a resonance and it lands really well. So it kind of has a space around it when you stop there. Just sometimes sentences kind of run out of steam a little bit. And if you leave a little bit of space and land on a resonant word like that, it has more sustain in it. And mm. that, that can be that can be nice for impact and performance. Yeah, there's so much to this. And I think why I love this as a as a writer is this can really take your craft into a different realm almost because you are thinking about things in a very different way. And I will recommend uh, Underland by Rob McFarlane, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is written, well, he's just an incredible uh, British nature writer. Um, and it's about, it's a nonfiction book, but it's, I would say, narrative nonfiction. It's just beautiful and it's narrated in a, in a very poetic way, and, I, and I, it was one of those moments where you know when you listen to someone and you and you hear the writing and the narration, you think, "Oh my goodness, I will never be that good." <laughs> hmm. I don't know that book. That's interesting, and I think because it's so much about the writer and their individual voice, and I think there's um there's a kind of continuum of you know very very poetically written and overtly musically written with that as a kind of aesthetic priority and then there's the other end of the spectrum where where it's not that and it's maybe um story that's the priority and um different kinds of characterization and i think you know thinking of that continuum if you go too full on with musical effect i mean when i say too full on that's that's the writer's that's the writer's decision it's a particular aesthetic you're you're in a different relationship to the writing as a reader it's more noticing the writing and enjoying the rhythms and the maybe the musicality but at the expense perhaps of um you know a very heightened voice is a slightly detaching voice mm. um so you might not be fully immersed in for example the story so a, a really simple example of alliteration and i think lots of writers are natural alliterators you know when you do peter piper pick to peck and all the, the mm. p's that that, re- that uh, repeat and i think Many writers love and do alliteration very naturally. And certainly I do it naturally so much that I have to go back in and remove it. Or it sounds, <laughs> you know, I have to kind of go, oh, no, there's too many of those and pull them back. Because it, at a po- up to after a certain point, it becomes about the writing and not about the story. So depending, you know, it's like kind of look at the writing and observe that rather than be immersed in the story. So there's a kind of question for every writer where they want to be on that kind of continuum of, um, you know, maybe very heightened poetic effect mm. and, um, and you know, uh, just different forms and genres. So there are, um, you know, there are pros and cons, but I think there's a kind of sweet spot when you're writing um, maybe a fiction, a fiction book that's, that's destined for audio where a bit more, editing with performance in mind because I think it is a performance ultimately when you're when you're uh, reading aloud an audiobook does help to shape it better for the reader's ear so you don't need to go like all out you know musical effects and that kind of thing but just to be aware of some of the things that can really help lift your writing and help it for the uh, voice artist for the narrator or for yourself if that's you mm, um, yeah, yeah it's worth knowing about some of those um uh, tricks and um, yeah, techniques that people use. No, fantastic. And just a, a couple more questions because we're almost out of time. <laughs> uh, we could talk for ages. Um, but I just wanted to get your, because you have, obviously you have a Scottish accent and you've talked about the distinctiveness of voice and personality. So we absolutely acknowledge that everyone has a different voice. Um, accents, I feel, are a difficult situation. And when I say accents, I mean your natural speaking voice accent and everyone has something um, rather than performing an accent if you're an actor, for example. Mm -hmm. So when should we kind of celebrate and double down on our natural accent? And when should we get voice coaching in order to improve the experience for the listener? 
I think mostly um, accents are something absolutely to be celebrated. And I think um, I think doubling down on it, I was just thinking uh, maybe when I do my really broad Scots or I'm speaking with family, then that would be quite tricky for people to understand. So it's contextual. But you know, I think people, as long as you're clear, people will tune in eventually. There's a great example for me um, watching The Wire, you know, that brilliant, mm. uh, it's really brilliant TV series. And the, the language was very rich and really brilliant singing with, you know, character and energy. And it did take a while to tune into and yeah, my Scottish accent is tricky for some. But I think what you lose is the distinctiveness and colour that makes your voice interesting. And this is it's an interesting point in the context of AI, which you've been uh, talking about and AI's reading books. For me, I think those nuances will be really important as a kind of mark of authenticity. So I think I think that's one question. I think celebrate accent and for it to be clear. And then for voice coaching, I think... It's maybe a slightly different question because clarity is one aspect of it. But um, I think I think it's a lot more about being at home with your voice and being relaxed and, um, um, yeah, projecting well and that kind of thing. And just becoming aware of maybe vocal tics and listening back to your recordings with a critical ear. And there are some. Uh, I was watching some, I've been making some strange sounds lately because there's some excellent uh, voice training videos online, which you can hear. And then um, they teach you things like sort of yawning to um, relax, uh, relax yourself and maybe tap into your natural, natural voice and um, things to stretch your mouth. So it's kind of a good starting point, I think, to try some of those things. Um, I would really love actually to get the voice trainer. I think you've been, have you been doing that? Yes. I think it just sounds, it sounds like it's really a really good idea. But for me, the, the trickier thing has actually been getting the tech set up. So that's on the back burner for now. Yeah, I think for me, I, it was all around uh, confidence, as you say, and you're, you're very confident because you've spent years doing, uh, you know, radio and stuff. So you, you understand your voice as such. But I think often introverts, writers uh, who don't do that uh, can worry. So I think the voice coaching for me, I learned a lot of really interesting things. But it was at the end of the day, it's about it's about putting the hours in in, in narration, which is similar to writing, you know, really. Yeah, and I think, and I think to be honest, this um, this setup is very different from what I did in the workplace. So um, there's something about audiobooks; it's very measured and close, close in. Whereas I think radio is more, it's more informal and um, doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be perfect. Podcasting doesn't need to be perfect. It can be quite, you know, fun and messy, and that's great. And I think there's something about, well, first of all, the standards at ACX. But also the nature of it being more performed, that it's I found that really quite hard uh, to get into. Mm. Um, so it wasn't natural for me at all. It actually took quite a bit of yeah, sussing out. Oh, fantastic. Mm. Um, okay, so um, just to sort of think about writing straight to audio, because we've talked about how to uh, sort of, you know, sort of edit your own writing for audio. So start with the written and finish with the audio. But what about the potential opportunity for straight to audio writing? So you talked about playwriting, which is essentially, you know, you not many playwrights published their plays, they are written for performance. Um, and at the moment, we've got this sort of massive resurgence in audible originals and audio dramas, um, audio, you know, fiction style podcasts. Um, so any thoughts on writing um, for that audio first market? Do you think there is a, a big opportunity there? Well, I think this is where it's getting really interesting just now, because it's all, for me, it's like it's really jumped out as such an opportunity because there are, as you say, there are lots of performers who write um, I sort of see there are some of these audible originals. Um, playwrights like Dennis Kelly have been invited to uh, submit a play, which when you listen to that is far more edgy, kind of more theatrical types of writing than you would get on, say, BBC Radio Drama, which has got uh, kind of different uh, parameters for what's allowed. So there, um, there are those um, audible originals. And also I think there's an opportunity for... Um, Anyone who's a natural performer or storyteller does spoken word and that type of thing. Um, and in my case, 
uh, types of language which are less commonly heard. I mean, you know, it's quite hard to get Scots language books published, and they're also a bit harder for to, for people to read because we're not so used to hearing it as um, seeing it as a written form. But putting it out on, in audio form is eminently possible. So that's that's one of the areas I'm really interested in: the fact that you could get um, Scots language uh, books out there, and there are very few of them. If you look at your niche. Uh, online at the moment because it's all just getting started up there's there's maybe very little going on in your niche so far so yeah definitely check out uh, some of these audible aud- audio areas it's getting really exciting I think yeah and I like I really like that idea because of course there's a reason that a lot of people don't write in Scots and I met someone actually in uh, at a Scottish conference and she had a grant you know, to do it because it's not exactly a high selling niche, but it doesn't need to be when you can perform it yourself and upload it and do an ebook and there will be a market. Like you say, it's a very oral, more of an oral cultural thing. So Mm -hmm. I really hope that that expands um, people's minds and the possibilities. I also think what is very interesting is when I wrote a screenplay for one of my novels, they, the, the agent basically said, this would cost a hundred million. This is not mm-hmm. going anywhere in, in screenwriting because, uh, you know, it's too, ex- it's too expensive. Um, but what mm-hmm. you said earlier, you said the pictures are yours in audio. So potentially yeah. you can actually turn what would be a very high budget movie into a much cheaper audio drama because you don't actually have to do all of that stuff. Oh, that's absolutely, you can get huge big uh, budgets on the audio. I mean, think of Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and how whole, you know, the whole space can be evoked. It's just wonderful for radio and audio are wonderful for these huge visions. Yeah, exciting times indeed. So where can people find you and your books and your services online? Um, well, my, I, um, my, my site's called methodwriting.com and it's got a hyphen in it. So it's not entirely brilliantly conceived for audio, but it's method-writing.com. So I'd love it if people could have a look. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Jules. That was great. Thanks very much for having me, Joanne. So I hope you found the interview with Jules useful today. And even if you don't want to narrate your own audiobooks, you can still use the lessons to make your books easier to turn into audio by others or to make them more lyrical for listeners and improve your craft. So next week, I'm talking about how to write a novel in a month for NaNoWriMo with Grant Faulkner. And NaNoWriMo is every November. So we're, we're doing that, it, playing that interview next week so you can start preparing if you want to join in. So So I started my first novel, Stone of Fire, during Nano in 2009 and also started Desecration in 2012. And both times, I think I've done about 20,000 words. Um, So I've never won, in in quotation marks, Nano. Um, Obviously, in other months, I've done more words. um, But this year, the timing works for me. So I will be doing NaNoWriMo uh, 2019 with a focus on my next Matt Walker novel. I'd really love to get it first drafted before Christmas. So if you want to join in and challenge yourself with NaNoWriMo this year and join me uh, to to do so, listen up next week. And of course, check out the awesome bundle of books for writers at storybundle.com forward slash nano, N-A-N-O. Happy writing. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.